0: Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, May it please the court, uh, counsel, Uh, my name is Chris Angel and it's my privilege to be here this morning on behalf of the appellant, State Farm Mutual Automobile Insurance Company.
1: Better it happened to one of us than one of you. (laughs) That happened to me one time.
0: Before I get into the the substance of uh, the presentation I've prepared, um, there's a couple of issues that I want to bring to the court's attention. Uh, One of them is, uh, in State Farm's initial brief, uh, State Farm cited and discussed a case called Nathan versus St. Paul Mutual. And in preparing for the oral argument today, I noticed that the brief contained an error with respect to the citation to the Northwest Reporter. Uh, The citation should have been 68 NW 2D 385, and instead I had uh, put in the brief 68 NW uh, 385, so I apologize for the error. Thank you. Uh, Second, the court may be curious as to uh, how and why Uh, a case that arises out of a motor vehicle accident in which Ms. Rodriguez was driving a school bus in the course of her employment, ended up resulting in a no-fault coverage dispute with her personal automobile insurer. And in fact, State Farm's policy contains an exclusion for for no-fault coverage for bodily injury that results from an accident in which... Ms. Rodriguez was occupying or driving a vehicle furnished by her employer. Now, Before Mr. Barber uh, jumps out of the seat, uh, for whatever reason in this case, State Farm chose not to uh, raise that exclusion in connection with Ms. Rodriguez's claim. Uh, so State Farm concedes that exclusion is not at play today, it's not at issue, and it's been waived for the purpose of this appeal and only this appeal. Uh, but by way of explanation as to how and why a case with this fax uh, ended up resulting in a dispute like this, I'm offering that by way of explanation.
2: Are are those typical provisions in no-fault policies?
0: I can only speak as to State Farm's policy. It's a standard provision in, in State Farm's policy. I would anticipate that other insurers have such a provision, and the only reason I say that is because there is a section of the No Fault Act, 65B.47, Subdivision 2, that specifically says that when an employee is injured uh, while occupying or driving a vehicle in the course and scope of their employment and the vehicle was furnished by their employer, it's the employer's no-fault insurer that's responsible for paying benefits. So I expect that there probably is uh, similar provisions in other policies. Again, though, I I just wanted to raise that by way of explanation. Uh, The issue in this case is a relatively narrow one. Uh, The issue uh, can be framed this way. Whether a no-fault insurer is obligated to pay for health care arising out of a work-related motor vehicle accident when the workers' compensation insurer has declined to pay for that care based on the workers' compensation treatment parameters. Now, there is a statute, Section 176.83, Subdivision 5C, that states that the cost of treatment beyond the parameters is to be paid, if at all, by the employer or its workers' compensation insurer. State Farm's opposition to Ms. Rodriguez's claim in this case is predicated exclusively on that statute, that statutory language. Uh, This court, to reverse the Court of Appeals, this court need only apply the language of that statute. Reversal of the Court of Appeals does not require this court to overturn record, patron, any other prior decision of this court, or any other decision of the Court of Appeals, for that matter. So far as I am aware, This matter that's before the court today is the very first time that Minnesota's appellate courts have ever had to address the specific issue presented by this appeal.
3: And could that be because of that exclusion that you talked to us about at the beginning of the, I mean, is this just like a really odd case because State Farm missed one of its key defenses?
0: Great, great question. the answer is no, and here's why. Uh, even though in this particular case, it just so happens that Ms. Rodriguez uh, was operating a employer-furnished vehicle, there are many occasions, uh, and I don't know, I can't tell you this percentage-wise um, what the breakdown is, but there are certainly many occasions where an employee is traveling in their own vehicle in the course of their employment, uh, in that case, the exclusion wouldn't apply because it wouldn't be a vehicle furnished by their employer. It doesn't even need to be their own vehicle; it could be they're driving in a co-worker's vehicle. And that that fact pattern does come up over and over and over again. And that's why this matter, even though you're right, this could have been this particular case could have been uh, addressed uh, alternatively by the exclusion. That's why this case is still important uh, because this issue comes up all the time and it comes up frequently involving non-employer furnished vehicles does that answer your question justice yes it does thank you thank you um so just uh, to recite uh, very briefly the the facts uh, of why we're here this accident occurred back in december of 2015 ms rodriguez was driving a school bus and the course and scope of her employment uh, but Ms. Rodriguez at the time had a couple of personal vehicles that were insured by State Farm. Uh, After this accident, she began to regularly receive chiropractic treatment, and her employer's workers' compensation insurer paid for the costs of that treatment, at least initially. Uh, But in March of 2016, uh, the insurer declined to pay for further chiropractic treatment, and the reason why they declined to pay is because by that point in time, Ms. Rodriguez had received 12 weeks of chiropractic treatment, which, and I'll get to this in just a second, is generally the uh, limit of chiropractic treatment that is contemplated under the workers' compensation treatment parameters. So the workers' compensation insurer invoked the parameters. You've had your 12 weeks. We're not going to pay for anymore.
3: Let me ask you about that. Once the workers' compensation um, Insurer does that. What's the source of the the obligation that you seem to assert that Ms. Rodriguez has to take that to an administrative hearing judge? No, no, I, don't, I, don't, I don't. I don't really see anything in in those rules that you've cited to us, one seventy six point eight three, that requires a person to take that issue. Um, You know, maybe they just accept, okay, that's the end of my coverage under workers' compensation.
0: Right, and and, and I would agree that's fair. I, I don't think there's anything about that that's compulsory with respect to Ms. Rodriguez. But what that statute does say is that the provider shall not be reimbursed, shall not be paid for the cost of treatment beyond the parameters, and shall not be reimbursed or seek reimbursement from any other source, Including another insurer. That's what that provision says. Now,
3: I have another question for you. Go ahead. Um, On on that, another insurer, um, you know, when I'm looking at similar statutes like in the No Fault Act, they always talk about um, no fault obligors. They don't really say insurers. And like the Amiki pointed out, the um, Section 62Q. Uh, 73 subdivision three which really showed me that the legislature knows how to distinguish between insurers for workers comp purposes and uh, obligors no fault obligors and I don't see I don't see any language like that here and this rule is sort of this section is sort of buried in rules under the you know a really specific workers comp statute
0: right and, and the answer to that would be what well, if if if, if the court's presumption is that the court is that if if the legislature intended to specifically include uh, no fault insurers it would have used the term of art reparation obligors that's a fair point but it's still the statute says any other source remember that another insurer was only identified i think it's fair to say as an example of what would be any other source i would submit to your honor that a reparation obligor would also be fall under that uh, umbrella of any other source. Council,
4: uh, do you have the statute in front of you?
0: I, I can in just a moment, Your Honor. Yes.
4: Yeah, I, you've been talking about 5C. I'd like you to take a look at subdivision 5A. Okay. That says rules requiring insurers, self-insurers, and group self-insurers to report medical and other data necessary to implement the procedures required by this chapter. Do you think insurers in that sense in the very, very next subdivision is talking about anything other than workers' comp insurers?
0: Yes, I do. And the reason for that is when you look at 5C, it, it uses that same reference. It talks about an insurer, self-insurer, or group insurer right, at that, right in that first sentence. But when it gets down to the exclusion part, where it talks about the sources from which you cannot seek recovery, it's not limited to simply insurers, self-insurers, or group self-insurers. It says it says they shall not be paid for insurers, self-insurer, or group self-insurer. And if that was all it was intended to apply to, I think the statute could stop right there. But it doesn't. It continues on and says, and the provider shall not be reimbursed or attempt to collect reimbursement for the procedure service or cost. I, I understand your source.
4: point on any other source, but I'm just focusing purely on the word insurer. Um, when not 5A suggest, uh, well, the word insurer in subdivision 5A, just looking at that, that's talking about workers' comp insurers, isn't it?
0: Uh, 5A? Yes. Yes, I believe I believe that's accurate. Yes, Your Honor.
4: Okay, so wouldn't that suggest that the word insurer in subdivision, in five, subdivision 5C, Is talking about workers comp insurers
0: Uh, no I I would disagree with that and and the reason for that is the modifier another insurer I think it's clear from uh, the statute that they're talking about another insurer if they meant to talk about if they're limited to work uh,
4: another insurer simply means an insurer that's not the one not State Farm right I'm sorry not not the workers comp insurer
0: right it could be it could be Ms. Rodriguez's health insurer for example that health insure would also be covered under this uh, section. I mean, the purpose, I think it's, it's key to remember what the purpose of uh, 176.83 was, and as I understand it, and I was too young to be around uh, when it was passed, and I think all of us probably were, uh, but as I understand it, the 176.83 was part of uh, a group of statutory sections that were passed in the early 1980s and that the purpose of the statutory reforms was to get control of medical costs in the workers' compensation context. As I understand it, that was the reason why uh, these statutes, statutes like this, were passed. Uh, 176.83 Subdivision 5C, if, if, uh, an employee could simply do an end. I mean, it wouldn't do a very effective job of controlling costs and health care expenses if an employee could just do an end around the workers' compensation system by going to her no-fault insurer or her health insurer. I mean, most often, a work case probably isn't going to arise out of a motor vehicle accident. People slip and fall. They have all kinds of uh, injuries that happen.
3: Right, but um, State Farm is only responsible for covering reasonable... uh, and necessary expenses, correct, True. so wouldn 't this be very helpful to you in the arbitration proceeding, um, showing that the workers comp system said that this was excessive, and you know under the record, state farm didn 't even try to do that i mean i don 't see this big this big problem of people doing end arounds when under the no fault, you can only be paid for reasonable uh, medical expenses
0: well I- And I think the answer to that is, in my view, it's pretty clear from this statute that the legislature intended that if a dispute arose as to whether or not treatment beyond the parameters was warranted in connection with a work injury, that that dispute is to be resolved within the workers' compensation system.
3: Could Ms. Rodriguez at this point go back to the workers' compensation system and dispute that finding?
0: Well, that would depend upon whether or not Ms. Rodriguez's workers' compensation remains open. If it remains open, she hasn't settled it in any fashion, there's no time limitations that bar her claim, then yes, I I expect that she would be able to do
3: that. And if she did that, you could also intervene in that that, um, proceeding, right?
0: Not yet, because State Farm hasn't paid anything yet. Okay. Uh, State Farm's right to intervene in the work comp proceeding would only accrue if and when State Farm actually pays some benefits okay. to Ms. Rodriguez.
5: Counsel, but, if, I, if I may, I, and this
4: I think backs up to maybe one of Justice Chudish's initial questions. What, if anything, though, required, is there anything in the statute in 176.83 or any any part of that that requires the employee to, and I'm just going to use the word exhaust, to exhaust her um, her remedies by and again I'm referring now to by going to that workers' compensation judge to contest or to challenge uh, the the treatment
0: parameters. No, I don't. I don't think there's anything that can make that can make Ms. Rodriguez challenge the workers' compensation determination in the workers' compensation system. And
4: so, what's your best argument for why we should? require that of an individual in these circumstances. And, and,
0: and, that, and, that, and just to be clear, that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm not suggesting that there's anything about 176.83 that requires Ms. Rodriguez to do anything. My point simply is this, is that to the extent Ms. Rodriguez chooses not to do that, that doesn't mean that her no-fault insurer is obligated for treatment beyond the parameters. So
3: it's at her peril.
0: Right, that, that, that's exactly right. Okay, okay. Sorry, was there, was there another question? I don't want to miss any. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, you know how uh, we got here. The, the um, after uh, Ms. Rodriguez uh, presented her claim to State Farm for no-fault benefits, State Farm, Uh, declined the demand. Ms. Rodriguez commenced a no-fault arbitration. The arbitrator awarded the benefit sought. State Farm moved to vacate it. The district court found that Section 176.83, the plain language of the statute, uh, prevented Ms. Rodriguez from requiring State Farm to pay for the treatment beyond the parameters, which is essentially the position I just articulated to. In our view, the district court got that right. And we think the district court's order ought to be reinstated. I talked a little bit about... Could
3: could I ask another question about, so if Ms. Rodriguez had challenged that, uh, we know the parameters aren't binding, that's why they're, they're able to have them. Right. And if she had challenged that and lost, then could she have come... Setting aside the exclusion and that this was, you know, this was a a school bus, setting aside that, could she have gone to the no-fault providers at that
0: point? No, I I, I don't think so, because that would would leave her in the position that she would have been in before the determination. I mean, basically what that statute says, the way that State Farm's (coughs) suggesting that it reads the plain language, is that treatment beyond the parameters is not payable by anyone unless and until there's a determination by the workers' compensation judge that treatment beyond the parameters is appropriate or warranted in a given case. If the workers' compensation judge agrees, oh, I agree Ms. Rodriguez should get treatment beyond the parameters, the statute provides that the cost of that treatment shall be paid by the employer or its workers' compensation insurer. And that makes perfect sense. If treatment beyond what, per- I think if- I think the question
2: is what if the workers compensation court agrees with the workers compensation insurer and says no the parameters are all you get under workers' compensation, then could some I maybe I'm misstating it, but then could someone go to the no fault insurer and seek recovery?
0: And I and I apologize, you're right. That that was the question. I, I was going at a, a roundabout way of getting at that. Absent that determination by the workers compensation judge that yes, in this particular case. Treatment beyond the parameters is warranted. Ms. Rodriguez has left where she started, which is treatment beyond the parameters shall not be paid by any other source unless and until a workers' compensation judge determines that such treatment is appropriate. If she if she pursues that and loses, I think you've got your answer. The questions. Council,
5: let me let me ask you. we got the collision between a couple of first principles here. The problem for the other side in this case is the any source language. And we're going to have a chance to chat with them about that, I suspect, but there's also plenty of language in the, uh, plenty of language in the statute uh, that discusses. um, Well, I'm just looking at the language patron quotes it. The the no fault act itself provides that a a claim is to be paid without deduction for other benefits. Uh, And there's certainly plenty of, prophylactic language that talks about the importance of paying medical bills and of course that's the whole origins of the early 1970s no-fault act what do you do with that language right
0: and that and that's kind of where the court of appeals went with this case i think you're referring to 65b b54 subdivision three Um, that's that subdivision uh it's State Farm's position that that subdivision does not conflict with 176.83 subdivision 5C. I know the Court of Appeals found that it did, and I know that there's at least one Court of Appeals decision, the Kleinfelter decision, that is basically held anytime, no fault, uh, any anytime workers' compensation denies health care expenses, regardless of what the reason is, no fault needs to step in and pay, presuming it arises out of a motor vehicle accident. Um, you know, that's, that's not what Subdivision 50, uh, Section 65B.54, Subdivision 3 says. I mean, that subdivision is titled Payment of Benefits Subject to Coordination. And it talks about uh, pay, uh, claims for benefits subject to coordination shall be paid by no fault without deduction for benefits payable by the workers' compensation if workers' compensation has not yet been paid. The reason I'm bringing that up is because then I think you need to decide, well, okay, what benefits are subject to coordination? And I think for that issue, you need to look to 65B.61, which is the section of the no-fault act that specifically addresses coordination between the no-fault system and the workers' compensation system. And if you look at that statute, it's broken down into three subdivisions. Subdivision three of 65B.61 generally precludes coordination between the no-fault system and the workers' compensation system. It generally precludes it. How do you square that argument with record? You know, record, (laughs) I don't think I can, because record has, I I know what language you're talking about, record talks about that 65B.54 subdivision three applies to all basic economic loss benefits, and that includes medical expenses. And I agree that's a problem. I respectfully submit that record probably overstepped in that instance because, again, the statute itself doesn't talk about. Would we
2: need to overrule record to to find for your client in this case?
0: No, you you wouldn't need to do that. And again, the reason for that is because this is a very narrow issue. This issue, regardless of how the court would come down in another set of circumstances, if her if Ms. Rodriguez's claim was denied because. Uh, she switched providers, like in Kleinfelter or um, uh, you know some other some other reason. Uh, regardless of how the court would come down in that case, applying record, this court can find in favor of State Farm in this case based solely on 176.83 subdivision 5c which wasn't uh, in play in record. And in fact, my recollection is record is a 1979 case, which would have preceded uh, this statute by four years. Counsel,
4: a uh, question in the time you have available. 5C is a command to the provider. It says, provider, you can't be reimbursed or seek reimbursement. Right. So let's say somebody comes in um, for chiropractic treatment that has been already denied by a comp insurer. Is the provider obligated to not to provide the treatment then, or is it obligated to provide it
0: free? What is the provider to do in the face of 5C? And that that is a great question. Um, at the end of the day, you're right. Um, if you take this to its log- logical conclusion, uh, where does that leave somebody that really, really wants chiropractic expense or chiropractic treatment, really thinks she needs it, doesn't get the results she wants in work comp, or else she doesn't pursue... Uh, a determination in work comp you're right it puts providers in a uh, a position of where they it put provide the, the treatment at their
4: peril doesn't it put the injured person in a terrible position too if if she's still feeling pain she goes to any provider and they say no nope, no no payment
0: no free care right because we because we can't recover for it so we're not going to provide it to you you're you're right but at the they, end of the day that would be a, that would be a result
2: could the injured a, party just agree to pay for it I mean, they, out, of their own, could. out of their own pocket well they, no
4: they, no they, it says the provider can't even accept the money from the um, from the employee
0: yeah they can't they can't attempt to collect reimbursement but I suppose if the employee says look I know what the statute says but I'm, I'm really hurting and I want to pay you for no,
4: it No, it says shall not the provider shall not be reimbursed isn't, isn't it illegal for a provider to accept a payment from an employee if uh, if it's beyond the treatment parameters, isn't that the way you're interpreting the statute?
0: Well, I, what I, the way I'm interpreting the statute is that treatment beyond the parameters is not payable by anyone other than a workers' compensation insurer or the employer. But you're you're right. right. So I, I'm right. The employee can't say, "I've got cash money here, please treat me." No, the, I, the provider I, has to say no. That that's a little bit beyond uh, a uh, fair question. Uh, Completely fair question. That's based on your
4: position that, that any other source means any other source.
0: Yeah, what I and where I disagree potentially and or where I say I'm not ready to agree is that an employee can't offer look I'm offering to pay you. I understand the statute says you can't get reimbursed from anybody. Says providers shall not be reimbursed. Yeah, but I don't, I don't know that that would make it illegal if an employee said, look, I'm really hurting here and I want to pay you for it, and the chiropractor said, all right, I accept. I don't know that that rises to, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I'm just telling you, I don't know the answer to that question.
1: Thank you, counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. All right, thank you, Mr. Barber.
6: Good morning, may it please the court, counsel. I'm Matt Barber here on behalf of respondent Jennifer Rodriguez. This is a statutory construction case. It involves the Work Compact and the No Fault Act, construing them in pari materia, which means they're construed harmoniously and together because they both touch on an employee's rights to benefits when they're injured, arising out of the use of a motor vehicle within the scope of their employment. There are three reasons why this court should affirm the Court of Appeals. The way State Farm reads Minnesota Statute 176.83, subdivision 5C, um, it's inconsistent with our canon that we construe these two acts in pari materia. Um, it does violence to three parts of the No Fault Act, the way this court has interpreted those provisions of the No Fault Act, um, and it leads to bad law, like Justice Little Hogg was just pointing at. Any other source, if it means really any other source than an injured person can't pay cash for treatment.
2: So what does any, uh, what does any other source mean if it doesn't mean any other source?
6: Right, that goes to the second argument. There's no legislative intent when you look at the plain Do we language. look at legislative
2: intent to, when the plain language says any other source?
6: Right, so the plain language, you have to read it in context. We read statutes in context. So 176.83, when it was enacted in 1983, was just subparagraph D. And back then it said, if it is determined by the commissioner, So the commissioner is the commissioner of labor and industry. It's not the commerce commissioner. That's an indicator that this applies only to work comp. The determination that the commissioner makes is an excessiveness determination. Excessiveness is unique to comp. It has nothing to do with no fault. The no fault act does not have an excessiveness requirement. Then we go to what is excessiveness? Excessiveness is measured by work comp standards. Again, work comp, nothing to do with no fault.
4: So uh, any other source, are you saying it means any other source bracket for
6: workers' compensation payments? Correct. Any other source under the work comp act. So a workers' compensation insurer, the employer, a group insurer, uh, the list. Yeah, right
4: it in- includes uh, any government programs. I guess there are some government programs of workers' compensation, maybe the railroad rack and so on is...
6: Correct, Your Honor. Yeah. Hmm. And then, in addition, uh, the plain language provides that these standards are established by the work comp rules. So again, work comp, not no fault. Council, the- can
1: I just, I just want to interrupt you for a minute because it's not clear to me whether your argument is there's an ambiguity here, and so we have to resort to the canons of construction like impari materia to re- to resolve the ambiguity, but now you just said plain language, so... I guess I'm asking you to pick a horse here.
6: Right, Your Honor. Uh, The record case provides that these two acts are in pari materia. So that's just how this court has decided we interpret these two acts together. So as far as in pari materia goes, the acts are read together as long as they can be read harmoniously together. Well,
1: let me try it again. Are you claiming there's an ambiguity here in any of these statutes? If
6: so, what is the ambiguity? There is no ambiguity when they're read harmoniously.
4: Yeah, but I think the problem is you invoke imperimateria in materia only if there's an ambiguity, and so does the record case essentially assume there's an ambigu can be an ambiguity.
6: I don't recall that from the record case, but if record says there's an ambiguity and that's how you got to impari materia, that's our argument. We're anyway, wrong. you're relying on our law, correct, Your Honor? All right.
3: It could be that uh, we now interpret impari in materia differently than the court did previously. I mean, we've I think we've tightened up when we look at it.
6: It could be, but the, the Cal Giusti case, I think, explains how impari material works, and that is, you look at these two acts that they touch on the same subject, and then as long as, I guess, if there are different um, provisions in one act, they're read into the other act as long as they don't conflict with the other act's purpose. And reading 176.83 sub-5C as State Farm requests does violence to the purpose of the no-fault act, which is prompt payment of no-fault benefits. So, relying back to record, this court has looked at these three provisions. Does it
5: matter that record pre- predates uh, the adoption of the relevant language here by
6: four years, as counsel suggests? It does not, Your Honor, because this court in 1993 in Patron essentially reaffirms record. In addition, the three provisions of the No Fault Act that this court relies on in record haven't been materially changed since record. Um, Kleinfelter does mention that record was drawn back a little bit by the legislature not to allow stacking of work comp and no-fault benefits, but Kleinfelter explains in the footnote, the general interpretation of these three sections of the no-fault act is still good law. And this is a no-fault claim, so it's governed by the no-fault act, and under Minnesota statute uh, 65B.61 sub one, it explains the priority. It explains that work comp is primary, And record explains primary does not mean exclusive, especially when work comp benefits are often contested, is what record provides. When there's a contest of work comp benefits, no fault steps and in pays. That's 65B.54 subdivision three. And then uh, work comp can seek reimbursement. It has to pay the benefit, but then it seeks reimbursement in the work comp action.
2: What about the, uh, and these are court of appeals cases, I know, but the idea that, uh, if a injured party takes action that defeats the right of reimbursement, then your description of how 0.54 applies, subdivision three, uh, doesn't work.
6: Right, I believe that's the Utterman case. That's There's where, a couple
2: of cases, yeah.
6: Right, and those ones are all where the injured person settles the work comp claim before they initiate their no-fault claim. Um, in record, or I think it's Raymond, the injured person started their work comp claim, there was a contest, then they sought their uh, their no-fault benefits, they settled their no-fault claim, and then they, uh, I believe they settled, the, or they had to arbitrate their no-fault claim, they settled the work comp claim before, while arbitration was going on. And there wasn't a problem there with uh, violating the no-fault insurer's ability to re- recover. So what the is supposed to be is there's notice about the work comp claim to the no-fault insurer, and then the no-fault can pay the no-fault claim and then seek reimbursement by intervening in the work comp claim. Only when the injured person violates the no-fault insurer's ability to seek reimbursement is there a problem.
2: So did that happen here when Ms. Rodriguez didn't challenge the work comp's uh, insurer's decision not to go beyond treatment parameters? I mean, does does no-fault have a chance to seek reimbursement Burstman from the workers' compensation sure in this context?
6: Right, State Farm did have an opportunity. Uh, Ms. Rodriguez did eventually settle her work comp claim and State Farm was given notice that there was a settlement that was going to happen and State Farm did not participate in it. State Farm didn't offer to pay. Is that settlement in the record? It is not in the record.
4: Counsel, I asked opposing counsel about subdivision 5A uh, of 176.83. Do you have that statute in front of you?
6: I don't have it, but I took notes.
4: Okay. Anyway, uh, 5A references insurers, self-insurers, and group self-insurers. I I didn't notice that in your brief that you made an argument that the meaning of the word insurer um, can be helped define that by Subdivision 5A. And if you don't have the statute, then you're probably not prepared to respond to that argument, would you?
6: I believe we made that argument at the Court of Appeals more thoroughly. Um, But it makes sense that that's the list of who all is contemplated under Subdivision 5 as a whole. So you like the argument? I do like the argument, (laughs) yes. (laughs) (laughs) So we would agree, it sets out who all these folks are in 5A. And then the rest of five is just saying, instead of repeating that exact same phrase, it says any other source.
2: It's coming back to settlement. How did that settlement occur?
6: The settlement occurred, the work comp attorney sent notices to everyone who was entitled to payments from this settlement. And then after not hearing from State Farm and anyone else settled the case.
2: Was that ever done in an official proceeding?
6: I don't believe it's done in, a, in an official proceeding. Um, all I know is that it was settled, and State Farm was given notice. And, well,
5: you, you would agree, uh, counsel, with opposing counsel that State Farm has no right to intervene or participate or um, to take any kind of action unless and until they've actually paid something. Correct, Your Honor. And so, by the time that's going to, by the time that happens, so the case is settled, uh, case is closed. Um, even if State Farm were to pay something at that point, what happens
6: to its right of reimbursement at that point? I just want to make sure I'm tracking the question, Your
5: Honor. What what I'm asking is what about the timing here? So let's assume, independent of litigating this in the the Minnesota Supreme Court, but let's assume that the workers' comp action is settled. Then let's assume either there's some proceeding or uh, the wisdom and brilliance of your argument persuades State Farm that they should pay, they now do pay, Uh, But because it has been settled, has their right of reimbursement been
6: defeated? It would because State Farm didn't participate in the settlement at work comp. Isn't that a problem? That's, well, State Farm is essentially violating the no-fault act's provision of prompt payment by delaying all of this. Their payment was due at the time of the no-fault arbitration while the work comp claim was still ongoing. So State Farm, by not intervening and not promptly paying, prejudiced its right to get reimbursed.
5: So that's a sophisticated way of saying they made the bed, they get to lay in it is kind of where they're at. That's correct, Your Honor. All right, thank you. And that also
2: means that Ms. Rodriguez then can double recovery, get double recovery?
6: Only because State Farm sat on its rights. But she can. She can, yes. That's the effect of State Farm not going through uh, the proper procedures here and not asserting its rights.
4: Counsel, what's your argument as to what 5C is about? Is it a... Uh, command of the provider does it make illegal it uh, a no-fault insurer or any other source paying and here's a hypothetical for you to consider um, let's say on the way back to my chambers I trip on my robe and I'm injured so it's presumably covered by workers comp um, and uh, I get get treated but the um, treatment parameters say I can't get further treatment but I'm still in pain So my rich uncle, and this is purely hypothetical, says um, you're in pain, I'll pay for your chiropractic care. Can the rich uncle go ahead and pay and can the chiropractor accept the payment?
6: No, as as, as State Farm reads the subdivision C, no, that's not allowed, which seems like um, an absurd result and we don't read statutes to create absurdities.
4: Well, we don't often find statutes to create absurd results, I think we've done it once. Right. but your position is if you read the statute literally, that's the result. That's the result. Yes, Your Honor. I can't pay. My rich uncle can't pay. The chiropractor can't take any money. Um, We'd have to provide the, payment, the treatment free. As far as State Farm
6: reads the statute, that would no, be. I'm the asking result. how you read the statute. Oh, I do not read it that way. No. How do you read it? It's limited to work comp sources. So, work comp insurers, group insurers, employers. So, if your rich uncle did want to pay, then your rich uncle would be outside of any other source language. And then the last argument is more of a common sense type argument. This is a no-fault claim. If the legislature wanted to add an excessive type test to no-fault or to adopt treatment parameters for no-fault acts, it would have amended the no-fault act to do so. Um, The legislature amends the No-Fault Act all the time based on this court's interpretations of the No-Fault Act.
5: Well, Counsel, you you can flip that argument on its head, though, because just the the other side of the argument, that the question that Justice Shudich asked, is to say the the legislature knows what a reparation obligor is in the context of the No-Fault Act. They provide in this statute any other source, which is, you know, that that language is uh, pretty... Uh, that that language is quite broad. They could have included language that said, excepting, of course, reparation obligors under Chapter 65B.49, and they didn't say that. Um, So, I mean, I think one of the problems here is both sides make arguments that, you know, probably have some merit about what the legislature did or didn't do. And what do we do with that?
6: Right. So read in context, 176.83 sub 5C, Once you look at this only applies to payors, it only applies to excessive determinations, it only applies to payors of work comp benefits, um, it only applies to excessiveness, it only applies to the treatment parameters established by work comp, and the treatment parameters themselves say they only apply to work comp. Then once it's read in context, there's not a problem there, because this any other source is only another work comp source. It's not a no-fault source once it's read in context.
3: Council, State Farm says in its brief um, you know, that you don't attempt to defend the Court of Appeals reasoning on the general and the specific, and it asserts it's because it's not defensible. It, it, you, ha- you didn't mention that in your brief. Uh, do you think that's a correct analysis or do you think it's just unnecessary given what you've just said about the narrowness of 176.83?
6: I believed it was because of the narrowness of 176.83, um, but the Court of Appeals, if it decided there was a conflict, that is the right analysis, the specific versus general analysis.
3: So, I get it now. So you're saying there's no conflict because this is just, this is just limited to work comp, but if we decide mm, this, this um, any other source is broad enough to apply to other reparation obligors, um, then we, would, we could look at that Court of Appeals analysis.
6: That's correct, Your Honor, yes. Unless the court has any other questions, we would respectfully request that the Court of Appeals be affirmed, the district court be reversed, and the court hold that State Farm must pay Mr. Rodriguez's no-fault benefits.
1: Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Angel, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal.
0: Your Honor, um, Your Honors, I, I, I disagree that um, this court needs to uh, overturn, disregard, reverse, whatever word you want to use, any of its prior decisions to affirm or to reverse, rather, the Court of Appeals in this case.
5: Well, I pushed opposing counsel on the record thing, and he says, well, uh, forget record, look to patron. What do you, what do you, how do you respond to that?
0: Yeah, and I, I don't read patron as reaffirming Uh, Raymond. Raymond contains the language that Justice uh, Thiessen mentioned uh, that extends 65B.54 subdivision 3 to all basic economic loss benefits provided for by the No Fault Act. I might be missing it, but I don't recall seeing that same sort of language in the patron case. Patron, of course, involved a claim for income loss benefits, one of, the, one of the interesting things about the patron case is it contains a quote that has been, um, in my humble view, uh, kind of misconstrued in, in these cases. Patron talked about uh, work comp can hardly be uh, primary if it's not payable at all. Well, the reason why the court held that way in that case is because Ms. Patron was attempting to get workers' compensation benefits, that weren't payable at all under workers' compensation. She had been involved in a non-related car accident uh, that resulted in her becoming totally disabled, and as a function of that, uh, she wasn't able to work anymore, and she tried to get uh, temporary disability benefits continued, and the the court held, no, the reason why you're not able to work anymore is because of the non-related car accident, and therefore any wage loss that you incurred, including the loss of the work benefits that you were getting before the accident is payable by no fault.
5: Let, let, me, let me pursue Mr. Barber's argument a little bit here, um, and let me just go right to the first language, the first part of the language in subdivision C, where it says, if it is determined uh, by the payer that the level frequency, et cetera, is excessive, unnecessary, inappropriate, according to the standards established by the rules, and presumably rules there refers to workers' compensation rules, because um, i 'm not aware of any similar rules in the no fault context, I mean all of that seems to suggest although the, the subdivision doesn 't actually say this, all of that seems to suggest that subdivision C is really aimed at workers compensation matters um, Do you agree with that analysis? If not, why not um, Does that get us around the any other source problem, and if it doesn 't get us get us around that problem why not yeah i i I got oh, four questions there, but i 'm sure you can figure it out
0: that 's okay. Uh, the answer to your question well the answer to the first question is yes it's referring to workers compensation rules because there aren't uh, there aren't rules uh, governing um, at least parameters in the sense that there are in workers compensation governing the reasonableness and necessity of medical treatment in the no-fault context so the reference in that first sentence certainly is to uh, workers compensation rules the second part of your question though i would answer no I don't think that that means, because the first reference is to workers' compensation rules, that that means that the entire application of the statute is limited to workers' compensation sources. And, of course, the reason for that is the inclusion of that language any other source. If this provision, if 176.83 Subdivision 5C, was intended to stop, was intended to apply only to workers' compensation sources, it could have stopped right after uh, uh, the reference to group self-insure in that first sentence. It could have stopped right there, shall not be paid by any, any insurer, self-insurer, or group self-insurer. There would have been no reason to include that second language, and the provider shall not be reimbursed or attempt to seek reimbursement from any other source. And as your honor pointed out, any other source is about as broad as it gets. And absent an exclusion for a no-fault insurer, the plain language of the statute encompasses a no-fault insurer. Well, but it looks like in 5C, that first
4: part about the provider shall not be paid is a command to the payors, potential payors. And the second part, the provider shall not be reimbursed or attempt to um, be reimbursed, is a command of the provider. Shouldn't the two clauses be construed as covering the same subject matter?
0: No, I I don't read it that way. I read it the You first read
4: the second clause to be
0: broader. Yes, I do. Yes, I do.
2: And that's because they use different words? Yes. Or the legislature use different words. So can you tell me so if if a if a person is injured in a car accident while in the course of you know a, a, arguably a work-related car accident and just Forgoes talking to their employer at all, forgoes seeking workers' compensation insurance at all, decides I don't want to put up with the headache of that, and just goes to their no-fault insurer. What happens then?
0: Yeah, that's that's a great question too. I mean, it gets to that gets to sixty-five B point six one, which talks about workers' compensation is primary shall be primary. Um, you know, that's not the fact pattern we have in this case, but I think it's a great question. Can a workers can a no-fault insurer say? Uh, no, uh, we're not going to pay anything. You, you didn't even make, you didn't even file a claim with your workers' compensation insurer. Quite honestly, uh, Your Honor, I'm not aware of any provision that would compel an insured to make that claim uh, with their workers' compensation insurer. But compel an
5: employee to make that claim? An, em- an, empl- an, an employee, correct.
2: So the employee has complete choice uh, and can kind of overcome the priority of the two statutes. By just making their individual choice that I don't want to deal with workers' comp, I'm just going to sue the work the no fault, and in that case, the employee could just go to the no fault.
0: Subject to that language that I cited to you, I don't know how that shakes out or if that's been tested. Uh, okay. You don't know one company. way or the other um, just, okay. about you know whether that language uh, a, a no fault insurer can use that language to compel an employee to make a workers' compensation claim. I'm just not aware of any.
2: Well, I'm just kind of coming back to the notion in the you know that typically the no fault that workers comp is primary no fault has to pay subject to seeking reimbursement and the case law not our course case law i guess but that would say that by defeating the right to seek reimbursement the employee can't seek benefits from their no-fault carrier if they take action that defeats the no-fault carrier's right to seek reimbursement so how does that so there's been no case law that's addressed that in the context of just not seeking workers' comp,
0: period. So so far as I'm aware, no, but that's subject to my own limitations. Counsel, is your client taking the position that we should not
4: follow the, um, the rule in record that the workers' comp statute
0: and the no-fault
4: statute are construed in peri materia?
0: No, and here's why. Because if, you, if, you, if, you, if this court agrees that Section 65B.54, Subdivision 3, uh, generally requires a no-fault insurer to pay health care expenses that are denied for whatever reason by a workers' compensation insurer, then I think you do wind up where the Court of Appeals did, which is, okay, we've got statute A telling us one thing, statute B telling us another, and I think then you resolve it by going to that 645.26, the section where it talks about if you've got two statutes that apparently command two different things, uh, the way that you reconcile them is the specific provision has to be construed as an exception to the general provision unless the general provision is later enacted and there's a manifest intent that the general provision shall be an exception. Now, here where I take issue with the court of appeals is, and again, I so is that in pari materia analysis that you're advocating? No, I, I no, I don't. I, no, I don't think it is because it, it, you know they. They've identified that we can't, we can't construe these in peri materia. We've got two statutes that we've tried as hard as we can to give effect to both, and we can't.
5: I mean, that's, I think, your what, argument is that in the specific and general analysis, you'd, you'd flip it. I mean, the specific really is here um, your position when you get yes, right down to it.
0: Yes, Your Honor. And, and, and I know I only have a minute left, but I, I, I do want to speak to the settlement uh, issue. Um, and I'm certainly uh, not, not calling anyone um, a liar or anything like that. Um, I don't remember receiving any uh, notice of a settlement of the workers' compensation claim, but uh, it is important to note that even if uh, State Farm had received notice of, you know, hey, we're going to settle this claim, and if you want to get reimbursed, uh, you better act now, uh, again, State Farm, at least at this point in time, hasn't paid anything it doesn't have any right to reimburse what the argument that that's a choice that state
5: farm made and um too
0: bad so sad I mean, yeah i mean that you know that would be the issue i don't I, you know can they compel uh you know basically that would be compelling state farm to give up the ghost on your argument in front of the appellate courts and and pay it now and
5: we do that in the context of of um, underinsured motorist kinds of settlements and Schmidt versus Clothier and some of those kinds of things. Um, why why wouldn't it be fair to have State Farm in that context here? Yeah,
0: and I, I just to be clear, I don't know that the a defeat of the right of reimbursement in all circumstances. Um, uh, renders uh, no-fault not payable. I mean, the Raymond case in the Court of Appeals, the, the no-fault carrier in that case was obligated to pay no-fault benefits. By that time, it was too late to seek reimbursement. At least in Raymond, the court held, you know, too bad. Uh, the fact that you don't have a right to reimbursement isn't dispositive. And, and again, I'm not suggesting that the fact that State Farm has been left without a remedy here to seek reimbursement is how you should decide this case. I'm simply mentioning that by interpreting the statutes the way that it did, that's the position that State Farm has put in. Justice Chutich has a question. Oh, I'm sorry.
3: Thank you, Chief. Um, In in the rules, um, Rodriguez cites a couple rules um, about um, the workers' comp treatment standards, um, in particular 5.221.0400 and 5221.6021 subpart 1 where they basically say that these rules have a narrow scope they apply to all entities responsible for payment and administration of medical claims under the work comp act and this and that second one that i cited said they're not intended the rules are not intended to expand or restrict a provider's scope of practice under any other statute doesn't that doesn't that sort of confirm that this subdivision C is really limited to the workers' comp act?
0: No, I I, I don't think that it is. And, and again, if, if our argument was based on the rules, well, we wouldn't be here because you're right. The rules indicate that they're limited to workers' compensation. Our argument isn't that because this is a no-fault claim, uh, she's somehow, but it's also a work comp claim, that she's somehow limited to these rules. The argument is is that you've got a statute that says when there has been treatment beyond the rules, the cost of that treatment shall be paid only, if be paid at all, if at all, only by the employer or its workers' compensation insurer, and not by any other source, and that would include a no-fault insurer. Our argument is based on the statute. It's not based on the rules.
1: Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course.